Hi, everybody. Adam Cook from Campus Inc. in the NIL store. Want to say real quickly, thank you so much for listening and joining us on this journey. And as a reminder, if you ever need any custom merchandise, youth jerseys, camp t-shirts, whatever it may be, you can always find us at campus.inc. And of course, for all your NIL needs, nil.store. We're going to jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy. You have such a wide range of experiences and are all super valuable to this space and this conversation. So I'm going to try my best not to drag on, but I want I want all of our uh, listeners to understand what your experience is and where you come from. So, uh, and please correct me if I miss anything. But the first and most uh, maybe exciting thing is you were a Division One collegiate athlete, basketball player at Williams and Mary. Um, since then, you graduated from San Francisco uh, uh, Law School. Um, You've been a practicing attorney specifically in the uh, college sports industry. And there's a couple things I want to highlight here. Uh, first, that you've represented collegiate clients, uh, including the NCAA, conferences like the Big 12, Conference USA, uh, Division One universities. And you've sat in uh, the litigation for uh, cases like the NCAA versus O'Bannon. Uh, the Alston cases, which we'll spend a lot of time talking about today, uh, and have spent a lot of time litigating things like conference realignment, uh, concussion protocols, Title IX, uh, and a lot of, of broadcast agreements, which you know we, we kind of hear the term of grants of rights these days. So uh, what an incredible honor it is to have you uh, get the, the chance to, to pick your brain and, and uh, get into the weeds here a bit on some NIL stuff. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me on, guys. I want to uh, kind of dive in first of all uh let's talk a little bit about just your athletic experience so you went to williams and mary uh you were a basketball player what what position did you play what was your experience like there um i was like a small forward um i had a great experience um william mary is a division one school in williamsburg virginia um it's in the colonial athletic association which is it's changed a lot since uh i left school when i was in school it was Schools like Richmond, George Mason, VCU, mm-hmm. James Madison, UNC Wilmington, American, uh, East Carolina was in it then too. Um, almost all of those schools are no longer in the CAA any longer. James Madison just left. Um, I think UNC Wilmington might be the only school that's still in the conference from from when I was there. A lot have gone to the A10 or James Madison's in the Sun Belt. Now, uh, Old Dominion was in the conference there. They're in the Sun Belt now too. So, um, but I, I had a great experience. Um, you know, obviously had a lot of fun playing basketball, hanging out with my teammates, doing all that stuff. Uh, William Mary is also a great school, so I feel like I got a great education. Um, you know, got to do a lot of cool things. Played, you know, like play at Duke, Cameron Indoor Stadium, and, and stuff like Heck that. Yeah. So, um, I had an awesome time as a college athlete. It's crazy looking back how quickly things change, right? It doesn't seem like so yeah. so long ago, but then all of a sudden you're like, wow, things are very different. I know. I, when I think about being in college, it doesn't seem that long ago. But then when I think about how long it's, since I've been on campus, it's been 20 years since I've been back. <laughs> the last time I set foot on William & Mary's campus was the year after I graduated. So it's been a long time. I was living out in San Francisco and have three kids now that keeps me really busy. So I need to I need to find a time to to get back there soon, especially show my kids around where I had some some of my formative years and played basketball and stuff. So that'd be cool to show them that. So I need to do that soon. Hey, Mitt, did you grow up a Jayhawk fan? 
I did. I grew up yeah. in Topeka, Kansas. Nice. And my dad's from Lawrence and uh, all his Heck family yeah. are, are from Lawrence. Uh, lots of KU people in the family. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge, huge Jayhawks fan. I've, I feel like over, uh, over the years, I became an honorary Jayhawk. I, I used to be the PR guy for Maryland basketball. So I worked with Mark Turgeon for a oh, number yeah. of years. And then uh, I had Danny Manning as our mm-hmm. interim coach last year. So I uh, learned a bunch about Kansas. But I'm curious, uh, Mitt, what would, what would have been your NIL earning potential while you were at William & Mary? Oh, probably not a whole lot. <laughs> uh, William & Mary is not a... A big school, even though we we're Division One, it's not like a KU or a Marylander or something like that, where we would have boosters willing to set up these collectives to try and get us a lot of money. Um, wouldn't have big businesses knocking on our door to do deals with us. You know, maybe we get some free drinks and sandwiches from the the local bar across the street from <laughs> campus, something like that. Yeah. But who knows? You yeah. know, I mean, some of the people that have the most deals are people you wouldn't think that they would like Raekwon Smith at Norfolk State. He's just done a great job of marketing himself and going out and finding deals. So who knows? Maybe some of us would have gotten entrepreneurial like him and gone out and made those opportunities. It's not always uh, the big names from the big schools. Sometimes all the deals. Sometimes it's just your name too, like the coldest, <laughs> uh, whatever his name is, yeah, Midwinter. Yeah. You could have done some things with Midwinter. Yeah, that's true. You could have done yep. some things. Winter with, with some sort of uh, cold weather related <laughs> item or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Base, baseball mitts. I don't know. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. All good. Yeah. Technical okay. difficulties in 2022. Some technical difficulties. Mitt, how interesting has your job become in the last like two years? <laughs> uh, it's been very interesting, especially the last year. Um, you know, leading up to July 1, 2021, it was a lot of, you know, what, what are the rules actually going to be? What's the NCAA talking about? What are these state laws? Uh, what are they going to be? And then when July 1, 2021 hit, you know, it's, it's been a lot of activity since then. And it's even built up through 2021 into, you know, middle of 2022. Now, you know, I spend every day working on different NIL stuff. It's not always all of my day, but it's becoming more and more of my day, you know, every week, um, whether that's working with businesses that want to do deals with athletes, talking to collectives, representing collectives, universities, other people involved in NIL. How long ago did you see it coming, right? Like obviously the Austin case um, was happening. Like if we were to time travel, did you see it happening this quickly? Do you feel like it took too long? Like where were you? Walk us through what, you know, You've been on the front lines of this. Yeah, I want to say like early 2019 is kind of when I started paying a lot of attention to it and other people started paying a lot of attention to it. Um, and when you could tell that the NCAA was kind of being serious about reconsidering its, its rules and allowing athletes to monetize their NILs. And that's kind of around when some states, I can't remember the exact timing on California when they started considering their law, but it was some sometime around then. Um, so that's kind of when I really started, you know, paying attention to, to what the rules were going to be in the laws and, and all that stuff. You know, I, I did work on the Alston case, uh, which, you know, touched on NIL and also O'Bannon. Um, that was even more about NIL than Alston was. But at that time, it wasn't uh, the thought that, you would have these third parties doing business with the athletes. It was more of what, what can the schools do for the athletes? Mm -hmm. Um, And so like the NCAA has spent 
quite a bit of time in court. Yeah. Do you think they ever want to go back to those days? Like all, all these rules that we're hearing about, you know, like, do you think they're actually going to start enforcing and litigating and actually upholding some of these things? Or do you think they're just like, we need a break? <laughs> uh, I think they do not want to end up in court, especially after the Alston decision where they yeah. kind of got, you know, things handed to them pretty, pretty badly. It was not a very pro NCAA decision at all. Yeah. Um, so they, uh, they don't, you know, don't want to get in a situation where that's, that's the law of the land now. And other courts have to apply that law and they could find themselves in another case that even goes farther. I mean, there already is another case pending out in, in California, the House versus NCAA case. It's kind of mm -hmm. trying to take things uh, farther than what Alston did. Um, but with NIL specifically, yeah, I think they just wanted they're they're afraid of, of litigation. Um, you know, they, they don't want to have a situation where a booster might come after them if they try and enforce the rules. Um, I do think we will see more enforcement, especially if they have a lot of evidence that they've developed that shows there's clear violations of the NIL rules. But as with all of the NCAA's rules and enforcement activity, the hard part for the NCAA is developing that evidence. They don't have you know, the tools that a prosecutor has, or if there's a lawsuit filed, they don't have the discovery tools available to them. So they can't really make third parties cooperate. So what you mean by that is like, say the NCAA has all this evidence. They can't just subpoena a school and say, turn over all your stuff. They actually have to bring it to formal court to pose them, go through that all. It's not like they can just say, show us what you got. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So when a normal, let's say a lawsuit's filed between two businesses, there's a, a, a process called discovery. And in that discovery process, you can serve document requests on the other side, and they have to produce the documents that you ask them to produce, as long as they don't have a, a good privilege reason not to or some other reason. And if they don't, the court will order them to produce these documents, or they can ask you to answer written questions called interrogatories, or they can ask you to sit for depositions, and you have to do it. The NCAA doesn't have those tools available to it. So they can't go to a booster and say, produce all of our doc, all of the documents you have relating to NIL deals that you've done or conversations you've had with recruits about NIL deals. You know, give us all your text messages and, and things and emails and things like that. They don't have those tools available to them. They can't make boosters sit for depositions. Mm -hmm. The only people that the NCAA has authority over is uh, schools and school employees and athletes. So they can, they can interview those people and they're supposed to cooperate and provide truthful information. Um, but it's not the, the formal discovery tools that you have when there's a lawsuit in a court that's been filed. So the only way that, that, that would, would, would happen is if there were some sort of overarching federal legislation or, or official legislation that would take place that governed boosters and activity and things like that. Um, that then even the NCAA wouldn't be the one bringing those requests. It would then be a, a formal litigation process, right? Yeah, there'd have to be whatever the law says, whatever federal agency is charged with enforcing whatever that law may be. That's the one who would have those tools of tools available to it and be able to get stuff for boosters. Yep. What What's the likelihood of you see that seeing that happening? 
I don't think a federal NIL law is going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, it's, I don't think it's a priority right now. Um, and anytime an NIL bill gets proposed, things inevitably get added onto it related to college athlete welfare, um, mm-hmm. revenue sharing, things like that. If there was just a very, very specific NIL law that got proposed, maybe it would get passed. I still don't think that would even happen that soon, but the chances would be better. Um, but I just, yeah. I don't see the appetite for it right now. So I, I, w- I want to dig into that a little bit more because there's this, this fascinating conversation around collectives and, and uh, you're, you're a, a fantastic follow on Twitter, by the way. So oh, for those of our listeners who, who don't follow Mitt, he's at winter sports law. Um, and, and you, you talk a lot about collectives and I chuckle a little bit because uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people who are just spinning up these collectives that maybe don't have any actual legal standing. Right. So yeah. I, I talked to, or I, I saw you um, uh, post recently about, I can't even remember the school, but you know, it was like a, a student run collective that was going to advocate for parking passes and advocate for uh, you know, n- negotiation was, uh, of benefits it was an Arizona state that's right collective and it, it wasn't student run it was booster run like most of them so so how do you like where do we see the path forward with these collectives seemingly just popping up like weeds everywhere uh with it's almost like what we saw with a lot of NIL contracts at the beginning like everybody writing NIL contracts and it's like that's not an enforceable contract. Like you can't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah. So how do we kind of navigate this with now the same thing happening with collectives? Yeah. It's like with any other business, kind of like what you mentioned, there are some, some good ones and, and some bad ones. Um, some are set up and managed well, following the rules, um, following tax law. And some are not, some are, you know, trying to bend the rules and, do things that are, you know, borderline, you know, not only violating NCAA rules, but also violating federal tax laws with some of the 501c3 nonprofits. Um, The big question in my mind is number one, is the NCAA going to going to start enforcing its rules? Because it's, it's clear that a lot of the collectives are getting involved in recruiting activity, which it's clear to me and, and others in the space that they're not supposed to. Um, mm-hmm. And as, as we kind of talked about, there are obviously collectives and other people getting involved in that process. Um, and then with some of the nonprofit collectives is the IRS going to start auditing uh, some of these 501c3s. And when they, when they take a look behind the scenes at, at what's really going on, are they going to be able to keep that nonprofit status that um, a lot of these collectives are able to get? when they file paperwork, but I don't know if they'll be able to keep it going forward if they are audited. But, but Mitt, with how like gray the law is and, and the new, you know, new legislation with, you know, calling collectives considered boosters and that they can't obviously in, use it as a recruiting inducement. But when a student commits after they've signed, you know, the PSA and all that stuff, mm. they can ask, how is NIL here? How do you even start to dig into if it's a true inducement or not? I feel like that window is so incredibly gray. Yeah. Like, where do you even start? I, like, it just blows my mind. Like, how, 
how do you enforce it? Where do you even start? Like, what is if if, if I'm in like NCAA's boardroom right now and they're like, okay, what the heck do we do? What are they thinking? <laughs> I mean, that you hit the nail on the head right there. Um, we know what the rules are, and you know you're not supposed to get involved in recruiting, and deals aren't supposed to be inducements. But proving that a deal was an inducement is going to be super hard for the NCAA unless they have a smoking gun text message that they somehow get their hands on or an email that says, I'm offering you this NIL deal in return for your commitment to this Mm -hmm. school. And then the athlete's like, okay, I accept it. (laughs) Beyond having something like that, I don't know how they're going to prove that the athlete committed to a school because of this specific NIL deal. And I think, you know, a lot of people know that, and you're taking advantage of that. Um, it's a, and that's probably one reason why you haven't seen a lot of enforcement activity as well, because as we talked about earlier, it's hard for the NCAA to get its hands on stuff like that. They can ask a booster, hey, will you send us all of your communications and text messages with player X? And the booster can be like, nope. And they'd be like, okay, okay. can't do anything <laughs> about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and do you think that's why like boosters and all these companies are probably like they know that it's so hard to enforce so they're like towing the line and taking advantage of it i mean obviously someone's gonna cross it right yeah but like do you feel like it's this no known that like there's no one with a speed gun so they're not gonna catch us like do you do you feel that happening yeah i do um you know to date there has not been any notice of allegations brought by the ncaa against anyone related to an NIL NIL deal that's been offered or accepted. Um, And as we touched on earlier, they're also probably scared of getting involved in another lawsuit. And so people have have taken advantage of of both of those things. Um, The fear of being sued and just the fact that it's, there hasn't been any of that enforcement activity yet. And it it is going to be hard to enforce the rules. Um, So I I think that people have, been aggressive because of that yeah but this is college athletics for as long for as long as it's been around it's been extremely hard for them to enforce (laughs) anything yeah i mean everyone why would it change with nil yeah everyone knows you have will wait you have will wait on a voicemail saying it's a damn good deal or whatever you know and and (laughs) wait still coaching at lsu so um so it goes in the end yeah it's Everyone knows that there have been under the, under the table payments in return for commitments for as long as college sports have probably existed. Um, now <laughs> yeah. it's just kind of coming more above board because you're allowed to do NIL deals and if you, you know structure it around the rules and things. And some people are still unclear on what the rules are. Um, so you're just you're just seeing stuff that was already happening kind of come above board. Do do you think that schools that aren't taking advantage of it, that maybe are sitting back and waiting and saying, "We'll let someone else, you know, make the mistakes first, Do you think they're going to lose out because they aren't on the bandwagon? You know, like a school that's super conservative is just like, "No, we're not going to focus. You know, we don't really care about that right now." Um, do you see long term effects to those athletic programs, or do you, do you think it'll it'll work itself out? Um. It could have a, a small effect. I don't think it would be a huge effect, at least right now. Um, for most of the athletes, I would say, you know, NIL is not the number one 
factor that's determining where they're going to school. Is it a factor for a lot of them? Yeah, but I would say it's it's down the list. It's below um, other factors, especially if you're talking about football and basketball. Guys are more concerned on, you know, if I go to this school, am I going to have a great chance of making the NFL or the NBA? And am I going to develop my, my skills at this program? Because, I mean, let's be honest, for guys that have hopes of making the NFL or the NBA, they're going to make a lot more money um, if, if they do that than they are through NIL deals probably. So there have probably been some schools that maybe have missed out on, on certain recruits because they're not, or their collectives are not willing to, to get involved in some of the stuff that's in the gray area on the, on that border of breaking the rules. And they've probably lost some guys, but I don't know. It's hard to say. And maybe it's it's not a factor maybe of choosing schools, but it could be on whether deciding whether they want to go pro or not. Hey, I have a better chance if I stay in college. If you look at maybe a Paige Beckers at UConn, mm-hmm. um, uh, one of the the top name in, in NCAA college basketball, um, she's got deals with Gatorade. Um, she is at the biggest school in in the country when it comes to women's basketball. She's got the biggest brand. If she goes to the WNBA, is she still going to have that same brand? So, um, having that, um, that collective strong is is a good way to keep some of your top athletes there. Uh, perhaps. Yeah. But, but I'd say like people that are adamant about like, let's say Kofi Coburn for a second, right? He could have made a ton of money. We made him a significant amount of money last year, just in merch alone. And he said, you know, what? like I have a dream of playing in the NBA. So what if I get a, a G League contract? So be it, you know, but I, I do think to your point, Sean, depending on if it's a revenue generating sport, non-revenue, you know, that that word non-revenue generating is a little different now. I think it might affect some of the sports that don't have professional career tracks. That that brings up something interesting. I've been I've been dying to uh, to dig in with you on this mitt. Um you know, some of that that decision psychology that Stephen was mentioning was, you know, sure, I have a dream to go to the NBA, but there's also a lot of things that benefits that come along with being a professional, right? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, you have healthcare that's provided from the university and all that, but you get some other employment benefits that come along with being not classified as a student, but classified as an employee of an organization. You know, we, a major hot topic right now is collective bargaining and CBAs and revenue sharing and all of this kind of stuff of how we kind of break down how class how, how student athletes are classified. Right. Um, I, I'd love just to hear from you maybe some of the pros and cons of if the NCAA moves towards classifying student athletes as employees, what are some of the things that they're getting versus some of the things that they're giving up? Because I don't I don't think people recognize that there's really two sides of the sword there. So if college athletes are employees, obviously they could be paid salaries. Um, they could unionize and collectively bargain with, let's say, the NCAA, if they're still the governing entity, which would allow all kinds of different rules to be created that the NCAA can't create on its own right now because it, would, it violates antitrust law. So you could have you know, salary caps. Um, you could have rules around free agency about when that free agency period is, which you don't have right now. And a lot of coaches have complained about that. They're saying, oh, we're professional sports without a salary cap and with free agency at all times. Guys can just mm-hmm. kind of leave whenever they want, whoever's you know the highest bidder. Um, but then on the other hand, you're going to have some Title IX issues 
if you're paying salaries to basketball and football players, um, it's a, it's a question of that. I don't think anyone knows the answer to right now is our if schools are paying salaries to certain athletes. Does that even trigger title nine or is it only related to scholarship dollars that are provided? So there's still a lot of unanswered questions on you'll have, you'll have more tax issues, obviously um, if you're an employee. Um, so yeah, like you said, there are, there are pros and cons uh, to it. Uh, and we'll, so there's really a, there's a couple of ways that, that college athletes could be declared employees. One is by the National Labor Relations Board, um, and there are a couple of unfair labor practice charges pending before that board right now. Um, one was filed by a group called the National uh, College Players Association. I'm not sure if you guys know who or Mogi Huma, familiar with him. That's his organization. They've been around a long time, like over 20 years. It's a college athlete advocacy organization. Yeah, And then another one was filed by uh, the College Basketball Players Association, which is a relatively new organization created by Michael Shue. Um, he used to be a, on the board of regents at the University of Minnesota. So those are those charges are asking the NLRB to declare that uh, college basketball players and college football players are employees of universities, conferences and the NCAA as well, which would al allow them to unionize. And then you could also have a court declare um, athletes to be employees. There's a, a case pending right now in federal court in Pennsylvania uh, called a Johnson versus NCAA case that's asking the court to declare college athletes employees under the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the, the two ways that it could happen. Um, and it would obviously be much different than the way things are now. Um, you'd, <laughs> you'd have to have a probably a completely new model. Uh, but there, there are people who have thought about these things. I've thought about it some about, about ways things could be set up and it would be a hard process to, you know, get that model set up and change things. But I think it could be done. If you, if you're a student athlete, do you want to be classified as an employee? What's your, what's your, I mean, we talk to student athletes all the time that they're like, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there, but honestly, a lot of these decisions are made way above our head and you yeah. know, may, might not understand the, all of the implications. So if you're talking to student athletes, are you, are you saying you want to be classified as an employee or, Hey, there's another way to go about this. It probably depends on what sport you play. If you're a swimmer or a tennis player, you're, you're probably kind of nervous if basketball or football players are declared employees or if all college athletes are declared employees because you're worried that all the revenue is going to be going to, to those sports and your sport I don't know, might not exist or might get less funding mm -hmm. than it does now. Um, if you're a football player at Alabama or Michigan, you're probably more in favor of it than the swimmer at your school mm -hmm. just because the likelihood of you seeing a lot more revenue is probably, you know, a greater chance of that than, than some other athletes. Um, so I think it, it depends on what school you go to, what sport you play, what level you're playing. Uh, this is just so fascinating to me because I feel like this, you know, we can talk about collectives and we can talk about businesses and stuff like that. And we obviously have a vested interest in, in how this, uh, pans out. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a, a, a lot more of these like foundational issues around, you know, a little bit of we, we've talked about this um, internally of 
kind of revealing a little bit of the house of cards that we're built on, right? And starting to see significantly more divergence in that basketball and football world yep. versus, you know, that non-revenue generating world. Um, and so I, I just, I, I wonder uh, when you mentioned who even knows who's going to be the governing body, mm-hmm. right? Maybe the NCAA. Are there other organizations that are kind of proposing models or, or throwing their hat in the ring, whether it be a, a, a college football league or whatever? Do you, do you see that conversation already starting to happen, even though it may be a 10-year arc? Yeah, it's definitely happening right now. Um, some For college football, some people have said, oh, the college football playoff should be the one governing high-level college football. It already exists as a separate entity. It already runs the championship. It already has the TV contracts for the playoff. Um, and that would be very easy for whatever number of schools you have to just kind of leave the NCAA and their their members of the CFP. And mm-hmm. CFP just kind of runs high-level college football, whatever number of, of schools that is. And then you have the schools that don't want to be part of I guess we'll call it the more professional model. They could stay as part of the NCAA, which would be more of the collegiate model. And and I was going to ask, as as we start to see conferences consolidate and the super conferences start to come together, do you think that's the beginning or those building blocks where the big Ten is saying, like, we might need to make a play here or the SEC? Do you you see it happening on a conference level or do you think that's just for media rights and, and, and different different reasons they could definitely be on the conference level as well um, one idea that, that people have talked about is each conference is just sort of self-governing it creates its own rules own enforcement process all of that stuff and it's sort of like what you have with european soccer so in european soccer you have the english premier league you have italian league you have the spanish league and they're all different, have different rules, but then they all come together and play in the Euro League and mm-hmm. see who the champ of the, the Euro League is. So it would be kind of a similar situation that like that. You'd have the Big Ten or the SEC, maybe one other conference. They might not have the same rules. They might have different compensation rules. Um, they could have their conference games, and then you have the, the college football, I don't know, championship, whatever you want to call it, where – you have a few schools from each of those conferences that come into play in this championship, or you could be the CFP could be organized this Mm way. Um, Another idea that's been tossed around for football, at least is in basketball. You just have totally new separate entities like the national collegiate football association or the national collegiate basketball association. And the same thing, whatever teams want to leave the NCAA, they leave and they join these new organizations and they are, you know, football ones just focused on football. The basketball ones just focused on basketball. So you can really get into how do we want this collegiate basketball league to look? What do we want the rules to be like? And, you know, if you get down the line where they're employees of uh, the league or, the, or their schools or whatever, then they could maybe collectively bargain with this new entity that exists to run college football or this new entity that exists to run college basketball. So like my question is like who's sitting there saying like I want to move this behemoth and try to change college sports are there you know are there ex ex like people from the NCAA commissioners athletic directors or is this just like 
this could potentially happen? Are there people really actively trying to do this? Yeah. So there are people trying to do different models. Um, Well, the NCAA has the transformation committee right now. So they're working on stuff and they've talked about separating uh, division one into, because division one is like 330, whatever schools. And a lot of people think it's too big just because the resources are so different between big schools and some of the smaller division one schools. So people have called, talked about calling it division four where you have the the really schools producing tons of revenue. They create their own division Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a group called the Knight Commission. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with them. And there was actually an article that came out, I think it was ESPN.com today or yesterday, talking about some of the models that the Knight Commission has proposed. And they're similar to some of the things that we've talked about. So I know they're thinking about uh, different models. Um, Lead One is another organization. I think they're mm-hmm. doing some thinking about models. And then you have... Um, college professors and other people who are thinking of other different models. So there are people that are actively thinking about these things and working on potential different models. Um, But to actually make it happen, you need to get a lot of people on the same page and moving towards one model. Because like I said, there are so many schools in division one. And even if you make that a smaller number, you have to get college presidents on board. Um, it would be a long, hard process, um, to do all that. So like, what, what do you want? Like if you, if you had it your way, knowing what you know, and and you've been on all sides litigating, what would be like Mitt's way of running it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so what we kind of just talked about earlier or a little bit ago where you have a national collegiate football association, a national collegiate basketball association, at least for just those two schools. We'll just talk about those two schools. I think a model that solves a lot of the problems that, that have existed in college sports and would help get rid of a lot of the, the litigation and the uncertainty with, can we do this? Can we not do that is, and it would help the universities too, because I think a lot of them, have gotten to the point where we have this huge behemoth business that we're running as part of the university and doesn't really necessarily fit into the mission of our university anymore. It's so big and it's such a separate entity. So you could have the the new basketball entity, entity, the new football entity, and whatever number of schools decide they want to do this or what, whatever number of teams, let's, I don't know, let's say there's 60 in football and or a hundred in football, hundred basketball, whatever that number is. They could move the basketball and football teams basically out of the university and create separate businesses for each of those. The athletes could be employees of these new entities those entities would then be part of the National Collegiate Football Association or National Collegiate Basketball Association. And each association could have its rules. And whether that's you're allowed to be paid, here's the salary cap. Um, if you're going to play in this league, you have to also attend a, a university that your team is affiliated with. Um mm-hmm your team has a licensing agreement with the university to use their trademarks, to use their facilities. Um, 
So the only thing that really would be changing from like a fan perspective is behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, basically who's funding the, the team. So the university would no longer be funding the team. The funds would just come from the TV contracts or the, t- the ticket sales, um, things like that. And that's a potential way to also alleviate some of the title nine concerns if the entity is not being funded by the university, it's, it's outside of the university. Um, you could have the collective bargaining between the the athletes that are on the teams and the and the governing organization. So you you get rid of the antitrust issues of the the entity always being sued for just unilaterally putting in compensation caps and and things like that. So I think that is uh, one. That's my favorite potential solution at least mm-hmm. um some people met with the other sports with the other sports like swimming and you know like you know the other ones where they stay under the university yeah. could you could there be a world where they could still be yeah. there but your your rev generators are are, are cut out almost yeah. correct well and that that model just kind of serendipitously i'm wearing an fc barcelona hat today mm-hmm. uh that that model is very similar to how football academies work across the globe, right? right? Like right. Y- you have these academies that actually go all the way down to youth competition. Mm-hmm. They're sponsored by the academy, right. but they're also tied to a school right. where, you know, you still get education. You're still, you know, tied to that process, mm-hmm. but you're actually getting compensated for the high level of performance that you're providing for this particular, you know, team right. or sport or whatever, all the way up. And then there's an actual path to the professional level. Yeah, exactly. It's very, very similar to that. Um, because it, it does get hard when the, the entities are, or the teams are part of the university and you're talking about trying to do the revenue sharing, um, mm-hmm. you get the title nine issues and, and stuff like that. And, you know, let's face it, they're the college football players at, at the highest level and college basketball players at the highest level, they're generating a lot of revenue for their school yeah. right now and not seeing as much as they're probably worth. So it, it sounds like and we're going to do a little bit of future casting here, but you, you've mentioned this a couple of times. And it's something that's, I think, starting to become more of the conversation as we get closer to some of these collective bargaining and revenue share conversations. But you mentioned Title IX. Um, just kind of short, you know, short answer. It seems like there's not really a path forward for NIL and its current structure and Title IX to coexist? Is that, is that unless things fundamentally change on one side or the other, is that a fair assessment? Actually, I think the way Title, the way that uh, NIL deals are happening now, I don't think there's a lot of interplay between NIL and Title IX because the money for NIL deals is coming from third-party entities. It's not coming from the university. Um, the only way, in my opinion, that Title IX comes into play with NIL is if the schools are providing resources for their athletes. So let's say if they're only providing basketball and football players with all of these resources to help them with their branding, to help them get more deals, that could be a title nine issue. Um, if you're a school mm-hmm. providing resources, you need to do that equally for, mm-hmm. for male and females, or at least make the opportunities to, to take advantage of those, um, resources equal, but mm-hmm. schools don't have to be responsible for the deals that actually happen because they're 
that's a third party uh, private entity. So if if we if we do continue down this path of schools kind of entering into that revenue share, that then would be that that would have to happen across all student athletes, right? Not just some. Most likely, yeah. It's still an open an open question that hasn't been determined whether if it's considered a, a salary, does that trigger Title IX or does Title IX only apply to financial aid in the form of a scholarship? Um, an open question. That seems like all the questions in NIL right now. Yeah. They're just all open questions. Yes. <laughs> there are lots of them. Mid, I, I have a, I know we're running up on time, so I want to make sure I get this in. I have a fun one for you. Um, I know you played against a lot of really, really good college basketball players back when you were in your playing days. Give me a player that you played against who would have made a killing on NIL. I know you guys went to Duke. I'd love to hear all yourself. about Cameron. <laughs> yeah, besides yourself. Uh, who would have made a killing, a player that you played against? Uh, Jason Williams at Duke would have made a ton. Uh, Shane Battier sure. at Duke would have made a crap ton for sure. Yeah, because he's yeah, he was like the golden child. He was a really good player. Yep. Uh, very well-spoken guy. Um, full package. Very, yeah. very likable. Went to Duke, uh, which so had the huge Duke platform. Um, let's see. Those are probably the, the two biggest guys that I played two good ones. That would have probably that was pretty cool. done pretty Man, well. I, I have another one. You've probably seen a lot of NIL deals come across your desk. Uh-huh. Um, any funny stories of some wonky deals you've seen or just some, some like things that you've seen that you're like, that have come out of left field? Um, I've seen some deals from collectives that have been offered to guys that were probably part of the recruiting process, but came across my desk after the person was already on campus and just not very well drafted and not, uh, not very favorable terms for the athlete. Um, pretty long deals, pretty, a lot of legalese, pretty, pretty confusing for like, if I, if I was in college and I was presented with some of these deals that I've seen, I'd be like, I don't really understand much of this and would definitely need someone to help me figure out what all the, all this stuff meant. Um, those are probably some of the most interesting ones that are that are coming from some of the collectives are, are you seeing a lot of like pop-up agencies agencies like i'm representing this player now without much agency yeah work? i definitely had a lot of people reach out to me who they don't really come out and say it um but it's it's clear they're trying to become some sort of agent in the nil space they're either a college student or somehow just or have relationships with a lot of college athletes and see a way that they can, you know, maybe try and make some quick, easy money by saying, Hey, I'm going to be your agent or I'm going to, I'm going to make some t-shirts for you that have your picture on it. And I'm going to help you sell those. And I'm going to take 50% of the money and stuff like that to reach out and like, Hey, can you help me figure out this, this NIL stuff? Or can you whip together this contract for me that I can have these athletes sign so I can represent them? There are definitely a lot of people, doing that. like that's your job yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. i always uh i always i'll never forget the story of when uh, an agent reached out to us about an athlete and tried to set up some time to chat with him and he's like oh sorry i can't have class at that time yeah and i was like that was, not, that was not what i expected as a response yeah there are definitely a lot of people like i said who either they're in college and they have class with some of these guys or just know them from whatever or in high school 
like they were at at a school with a lot of guys who went on to play in college and they're trying to jump in and become their agents or or marketing agents or whatever you want to call it what what's a percentage if if you like if we're you know we got a lot of athletes that listen what's a percentage that you would say like if this is a red flag if somebody's asking or wanting to help you and what would you say is like ah oh, this this is a fair obviously there's a range there but yeah. just just off the top of your head um if you're getting much above 15%, definitely above 20%. Um, that's pretty high for, for an, an agent fee. You got to provide a lot of value, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think like there's such good platforms out there, right? Like influencer and, and market price and open doors that, that do a lot of that for the players. Right. Um, I don't think agents like to hear that. But what's what's most interesting is we work with like some of the biggest agencies for professional sports and they have players that are representing for NIL and their last concern is like exactly how much they're making. All they're trying to do is foster good relationships so they can stay with them long term. So you, you see this cliff of like real real right. agency versus like the ambulance yep. chaser. So I think it's interesting, um, you know, the legit ones don't they're not going to make much money off them. Yeah, unless you have um, we one it. of the few people like Paige Beckers or Bryce Young who's mm-hmm. actually making a significant amount of money off of NIL deals. Most of the agencies are not going to make a ton of money probably off NIL deals. Like you said, they're trying to foster that relationship. So if they do make it to the NFL, NBA, or, or whatever, then they can represent mm-hmm. them in their contract negotiation for their with their professional team and then you know marketing deals when they're professionals as well Mitt, as you see this this industry growing are you you know do you feel like you are going to become like a specialist in in the nil space do you enjoy working on other things is like live golf and and that appeasing like is that cool to you what do you what do you what do you see yourself doing i love working on the nil stuff um you know as a former college athlete i think it's it's really cool to 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 stay involved and especially since it's, you know, it's a totally new space that's changing all the time. Um, every day is different. Talk to all kinds of different people involved in, in college sports or, or businesses that want to do deals with athletes. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a lot of fun um, and exciting. Um, I do do other stuff too. I do business litigation, uh, some IP stuff as well, but NIL stuff is definitely becoming a lot, a lot more of what I do. And I, I see that probably just continuing to grow as, as time moves on. Um, it's always more fun for me as an attorney to work on things that I'm passionate about and really interested in. It makes, you know, my, my day more interesting and more fun. So I love working on the NIL stuff and, and hope to continue doing a lot of it and, more in the future i think uh you know we've talked about all the different stakeholders you know businesses collectives universities athletes what, what's what's your kind of last general piece of advice doesn't have to be around anything specific to athletes who are you know still navigating figuring this space out um yeah number one if you are going to sign with an agent uh make sure it's someone who's looking out for your best interests and not someone who's just trying to make money off of you someone that uh, is it actually there to help you find good deals? Um, and if you're going to sign with an agent, make sure you have someone review your agency contract. Um, it doesn't have to be an attorney. It could be a parent or 
someone you trust, someone at your school, maybe uh, you just don't want to get stuck in a bad agency deal that could potentially be for a, a long time, longer than, than you're thinking. Um, you're, you're probably going to be presented with all kinds of different deals, um, some better than others. You know, be, be selective about the ones you actually enter into. Don't just enter into any deal that comes across your Instagram DMs or Twitter DMs or, or whatever. <laughs> um, and then I would say be responsive to especially the good deals. Like I've, I've helped some businesses that are very legit businesses. They want to do these pretty cool deals with these athletes and they're very easy deals for the athletes. Athletes don't really have to do a whole lot except sign their name on the contract. Maybe do a few social media things and then there's collecting royalties. Um, and the athletes just will not respond to the business or they get to this <laughs> point where like, all right, I'll do the deal. And then they send them the agreement, even on DocuSign and they just can't get them to like check their email and mm -hmm. take that last mm -hmm. step where just, just sign this and you're going to collect some checks. You're going to get, you know, money, <laughs> you know, you don't have to do anything. Um, that's probably my pieces of advice for the athletes right now. This is another episode of the NIL show with Mitt Winter. Again, follow him on Twitter and uh, we'll have to put link in, in, in our description, but uh, thanks so much for joining us and uh, we'll be back for another one next week. Hey everyone, Adam Cook from Campus Inc. in the NIL store. Just wanted to say thanks again for listening and joining us on this journey. And as a reminder, if you ever need any teamwear, custom merchandise, rec or youth league jerseys, uh, fraternity and sorority wear, or company merchandise, we're always here for you. You can find us at campus.inc. And of course, for all your NIL needs, nil.store.